Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about things going from very bad to significantly worse in Shakespeare's histories. In today's episode on Henry VI, Part 3, we discuss the fall of a king who wants to be a shepherd, observe the bloody fallout of civil war, and reflect on what Shakespeare can teach screenwriters about writing sequels. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Bard Flies, Episode 5, The Fall of the House of Lancaster. Three great men sit in a room, a king, a priest, and a rich man. Between them stands a common sellsword. Each great man bids the sellsword kill the other two. Who lives, who dies? Depends on the sellsword. He has a sword, the power of life and death. But if it's swordsmen who rule, why do we pretend kings hold all the power? Power resides where men believe it resides. James, in the first two plays in this cycle, we've seen England go from being a powerful, unified nation, projecting power on the European continent, to an isolated, war-torn backwater riven by factional strife. Can you give us a summary of where part three takes us? I sure can, Will. The play opens right where part two left off, with the Yorkists hot in pursuit of the defeated Lancastrian forces after the Battle of St. Albans. When the Yorkists reach London, Richard, Duke of York, leader of their cause, who is extremely pleased with himself, sits in Henry's throne in the Palace of Westminster. There, Henry confronts him. Ultimately, the two hash out an agreement whereby Henry will disinherit his own son and make Richard heir to the throne instead. Henry and Richard are both pleased with this result, but none of their supporters are. York's supporters warn him that he has only delayed the inevitable and that hostilities are bound to break out again. They are proved right almost immediately, as Queen Margaret is incensed that Henry has passed over the rights of his son and vows to carry on the fight herself. Margaret takes the fight to York's home at Castle Wakefield. This time, it is the Lancastrians who are victorious, and York is captured and humiliated by Margaret and Clifford before they kill him. (coughs) The Yorkist cause seems to be in tatters, but York's eldest and third sons, Edward and Richard, resolve to carry on, supported as well by their brother George. The Yorkists win a great victory at the Battle of Towton. Henry is imprisoned, Edward declares himself king, and both George and Richard are granted dukedoms. Richard reveals to the audience his ambitions to seek power for himself. Well, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a kingdom must surely be in want of a wife. Thus, Edward dispatches the Earl of Warwick, one of the most powerful men in the kingdom and a bedrock of the Yorkist cause, to the French court to secure the hand of the French king's sister-in-law to be his queen. Just as it seems that Warwick will succeed in gaining the support of the French king, a messenger arrives from England who reports that Edward has instead decided to wed a base-born widow named Elizabeth Woodville. Warwick, enraged that the king has perjured him, switches sides to support the Lancastrians. George, the brother of Richard and Edward, sees the writing on the wall and defects to the Lancastrians as well. With Lancastrian power waxing, Warwick leads a French army to England takes Edward prisoner, and restores Henry to the throne. Not long after, however, Richard arranges for Edward's escape from the captivity. The Lancastrians gird for the resumption of hostilities, in an aside that is meaningless for Henry VI Part Three, but will be very, very important in its sequel, Richard III, Henry sends the young Earl of Richmond, the next in the Lancastrian line after his own son, to shelter in France. In the lead-up to yet another battle, Edward and Richard's traitorous brother George returns to the Yorkist fold, tilting the balance in Edward's favor. The Yorkists are victorious, Warwick is slain, and King Henry is imprisoned by Edward in the Tower of London. 
Soon thereafter, the Yorkists win a decisive victory at the Battle of Tewkesbury. They send Queen Margaret into exile and confront her son, Henry VI heir. When he refuses to recognize the Yorkist claim to the throne, the three brothers are enraged and kill him. <coughs> Richard runs ahead of the Yorkist army to London, where he confronts and then murders Henry in the Tower of London. <coughs> As the play ends, the House of York seems to have achieved total victory, but little does King Edward IV know that his victory is only the prologue to his brother's murderous scheme. I'll make my heaven to dream upon the crown. And whilst I live to account this world but hell. And yet I know not how to get the crown. For many lives stand between me and home. And I, like one lost in a thorny wood that rents the thorns and is rent with the thorns, seeking a way and straying from the way, not knowing how to find the open air, but toiling desperately to find it out, torment myself to catch the English crown. And from that torment, I will free myself or hew my way out with a bloody axe. So, Will, we've got a lot of stuff that we can... We made a pretty long list of things we can talk about here, but I think one obvious one that is has been a subject that we've addressed, I think, in both the last two plays that sort of carries through here is a question of what what makes a king legitimate, what makes a government legitimate, who carries legitimacy here, how is it defined? So this is less a question and, and more a broad topic, but what do you take away from this play in terms of what Shakespeare tells us about either who is or who should be the legitimate ruler and perhaps, in fact, is there one? Yeah, I think the answer is no. I mean, he depicts a brutal civil war where there is much switching of sides and a lot of venality. And you have a sort of pious but incompetent king in Henry VI. And then you have, like, a Machiavellian and very kind of effectively scheming group of people in the House of York and in Margaret, but they behave very dishonorably throughout. So... Often the claims themselves, while important, seem to be kind of, you know, pretexts basically for raw power politics behind so the scenes. So maybe, maybe this is the, the right place to start, is this question about the claims. So if you listen to our episode about Henry VI Part One, and you can cast your mind back that far to remember the background of how this all happened. So this goes all goes back to Richard II, who was the first son of the first son of King Edward III. Richard II is deposed by a man named Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV, who is the son of the fourth son of Edward III. So Richard, Duke of York, who in this play is killed early, but is the first Yorkist to, to claim the throne, derives his claim from the fact that he is the, just tracing this down, is the grandson of Philippa the daughter of Lionel, Duke of Clarence's third, son of Edward III. However, if we can boil it down to the simple question here, the Yorkists claim that their claim is superior because they are derived from the third son of Edward III, whereas the Lancastrian claim is that they are the legitimate heir of Edward III by way of the Anyatic succession, which excludes females. So the question is basically, can females inherit or not? 
I'm glad that you were able to get to that question because this all sounds clear as mud to me. So oh, it's, anyway, the point being, <laughs> the point being that the legal arguments at play are pretty academic and well, you can tell me if you don't agree with me, but I think basically unanswerable, right? The answer to the question of should the royal succession proceed via Philippa, daughter of Lionel, or should it proceed via John of Gaunt really comes down to who can win and action that legal claim. Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's, you know, to use a, to use an analogy from U.S. history, Mr. Marshall has made his ruling, now let him enforce it, as Andrew Jackson famously said. You know, at the end of the day, there's sort of, there's power politics, and then there's sort of the the mantle that you claim, the sort of legal justification for things. And I think, as you see from the characters switching sides repeatedly in this play, the legal claims are often so tenuous as to not be maybe the most relevant part well, of it's what's also, going on here. Well, it's also clear that no one really seems to believe what they're saying, really. I, like, Warwick switches sides because he feels offended that... Edward has perjured him, and therefore now Henry's claim is actually better than Edward's. Henry himself, early in the play, fails to say that his claim is better, and basically says he's in the wrong. And Margaret is defending this because she wants her son to be king, you know, and preserve sort of her power. Clifford is mad because his Yeah, I mean, Clifford straight out says, I'll see if I can find it. Well, Edward, sorry, just because I'm flipping through here seeing the lines I've highlighted. Edward i.e. Edward, the future King Edward, the son of Richard, Duke of York, claims, but for a kingdom any oath may be broken, I would break a thousand oaths to reign one year. Basically straight up saying the legal pretext doesn't matter. What matters is power. I mean, tell me if you yeah, don't no, think no, that, that's, I'm, that's that right. I'm accurately reading that line. That is the right reading. Clifford at some point basically straight up says that the reason that he's supporting that he's supporting King Henry and the Lancastrians instead of the Yorkists is because Richard, Duke of York, killed his father. Ultimately, the reason that these sides are arrayed the way they are feels like it's more about contemporary emotion passion anger and yeah. and and power motivations just in the short you term know the, the claim is a pretext more yes. than it is a actual yes source of legitimacy right and and there's an idea in some sense that like all of these people are usurpers of one variety or another right because the claims are so tenuous and like are frankly not raised for decades in the context of the play yeah it sort of belies the notion that this is all about you know actual deeply motivated deeply principled adherence to sort of primogeniture or okay not. so the, well i agree with you here But I think I'm going to depart from you, and I think this is where some of our basic disagreement comes, right? In that, yes, you're completely right that the way that all the characters in the play behave is about their immediate, either their immediate emotional reactions to things or their immediate self-interest. That said, clearly there is something to the idea of legitimacy, right? In that, for instance, Warwick is known as the kingmaker because he's the most powerful noble in the kingdom. Mm Mm-hmm. And he is related to the royal line, but Warwick himself could not depose Henry VI and set himself up as king because he doesn't have any kind of claim by which he can say that he's the the correct ruler, right? So clearly there is there's just there's, there's an idea one, yeah. of of a legal pretext here, yes. right? That you have to you have to at least be able to advance a claim. So- I think in that, some fashion. I think that's I think that's true in a sort of sense of like having the stature to make the claim, right? There's a reason why like the commoners that were involved in the uprising in the prior play 
or sort of put down pretty ruthlessly. It's like you're not going to hand over the kingdom to, like, Jack Cade and his... Well, and let's not forget that Jack Cade was claiming that he was Richard of York. Yes, he was. He was. I mean, he was a tool of of Richard of York. But I guess the point being, you can't just, like, advance the claim that you're king, like, out of nowhere for the most part. I mean, obviously, you go way back in time and people did do that. And that's obviously why we are where we are in this play thousands of years, you know, or hundreds of years hence. Agree to disagree. I mean, if I assume you're talking about William the Conqueror. Well, yeah, to a degree. But I, I guess, like, right. I guess what I'm saying is, like, nobility doesn't come out of, like... It, it doesn't come out of nowhere, right? You know, it's it's because these people were landed powers, you know, like scions of powerful families that had like force on their side in various sure. disputes, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not as if these like you know these storied noble houses like have existed you know since antiquity and like like some of them are recent inventions, right? And some more recent than others. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Sure. But I think the issue here, though, uh, is and we'll use something that Warwick says. It's not so much that, you know, legitimacy doesn't matter at all, but that legitimacy is extremely insufficient in and of itself to actually make somebody a good or effective ruler, and that it can really, in and of itself, it doesn't really do anything for you. And so this is, granted, Warwick betrays people a bunch of times, but when he's explaining his last sort of betrayal, he says something that makes sense to modern readers of this play. A quick explanation of this. So, Edward sent Warwick to the King of France as an ambassador to try to secure the sister-in-law of the King of France as Edward's wife in an effort to bolster Edward's power. And then, while he was making that pitch, he received the message that Edward had instead decided to marry Elizabeth Woodfull, Lady Grey. Who is an English uh, noblewoman. Uh, So, Warwick says, When you disgraced me in my embassade, I degraded you from being king, and now come to create you Duke of York. Alas, how should you govern any kingdom that know not how to use ambassadors, nor how to be contented with one wife, nor how to use your brothers brotherly, nor how to study for the people's welfare, nor how to shroud yourself from enemies? And that's basically the pitch for competence being something that should be sought you know, from rulers. And I think it's, it's interesting that that is a through line throughout this, because you see people with legitimate claims of varying degrees behaving very badly and failing England and leading to this bloody civil war that really doesn't advance the kingdom or the people or even the nobility or the crown's interests over time particularly well. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that analysis. Let's switch gears here to go to, I was going to say our old friend Henry VI, but I don't know that anyone would really call him their friend. But, Will, this play sees the demise of the titular Henry VI who we've followed since the beginning of Henry VI Part One. We've read a lot of pages and a lot of lines from this character. He is, I guess not brutally murdered, but he is murdered by Richard in the last scene of the play, or the second to last scene of the play or something. What are your final thoughts? How do we bid farewell to this character? So, I mean, Henry VI, the sort of pious, you know, incompetent ruler whose weakness is kind of what sets this play in motion, in a sense, you feel for him a little bit in this one in ways that you don't in the others. He's obviously an incompetent king in that sense, polar opposite of, you know, say, Richard III's bloodlust and sort of complete immorality. But at the end of the day, they're both 
they're both bad. And in fact, all of the people who arguably claim the mantle of king in this are not are not. It's interesting, good. right? They're Henry just bad VI, for different reasons, right? Henry the Sixth is bad because he vacates the responsibility of a king, mm-hmm. while Richard the Third is bad because he engages in tyranny as king. Right? They're almost polar opposite pathologies, maybe. Yes. And yet the result is similarly terrible. Yes, there's a sort of like, it's either by the vacuum of power or sort of an excess fondness for scheming and excess desire to wield power that you end up often in the same basic situation, which is civil war and bloodshed and internecine feuding. Yeah, I'm, I'm Clifford at some point pretty much makes this explicit where he tells Henry in this moment where Henry has kind of given up his his willingness to rule where he says you know if you were more like your powerful father henry v this would never have been a problem my gracious liege this too much lenity and harmful pity must be laid aside to whom do lions cast their gentle looks right he's saying he's basically saying you have to be a killer to do the job um, which I think is like... Which maybe I think not is, you have to be a killer, but you have to be willing to exert your authority. I, I think, don't think it's as far as you have to be a killer. Well, I, I think that sometimes... I think when you're a king, sometimes being a killer is a necessary adjunct of the job, right? Like just by the nature of the politics of the day and and all of that, right? But yeah, I think I think it's basically you do have to wield your authority and you have to be sometimes ruthless. That does not mean ruthlessness for its own kind of purposes or solely for your own sake, but you have to be ruthless to guard the common wheel against yeah. various dangers. And and Henry has I think the one the two, or not the one, the the two sort of constant elements of his character have been one, his piety, and two, his really his lack of interest in yeah, Hen- ruling. Henry, and that, yeah. that extends, you know, in part two, he didn't advocate for Gloucester, who he, sorry, to be clear, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, who at the time was the Lord Protector and basically his prime minister, mm-hmm. right, who falls because of... Scheming his, by nobles against him from yeah, the Yorkists. Exactly. Yeah. Henry believes him to be innocent, but still basically allows him to be imprisoned, which sets up the situation where he is murdered. Mm-hmm. And in this play, he fails to advocate for himself and his son, uh, and his and, son, and basically, you know, just caves as soon as Richard of York gives him the opening that he'll stop rebelling if he makes if Henry makes Richard his heir. Yeah, I mean, Henry basically sells out his own people, right? Which is why I think also, in addition to the personal motivations, there's sort of a basic political thing here where it's like. You just betrayed all the people that have been supporting your claim during this brutal civil war, and it was like all for nothing. That's pretty. That's a pretty tough pill to swallow. But I think what's what makes I think Henry a little bit more sympathetic is he realizes his manifest unfitness a little bit more explicitly in this. It's not just that Clifford tells him this. There's a moment where he is either imprisoned in Scotland or just... I think he might have just been wandering in the countryside. And he's sort of thinking about how great it would be to be a shepherd. And he has these passages where he says, Oh, all I really want to do is like drink water or drink out of a leather satchel and sort of wander among the sheep. And there's a there's a sort of realization that the guy is just not cut out for this. He sort of knows it. Everybody else sort of knows it. I mean, this is a problem with monarchy and, and sort of these forms of government is you don't always... Every once in a while, you know, you, you draw people that are manifestly unfit, in like as in any uh, family. Well, so. as you know, I, I'm going to have to disagree with you 
solely on the claim that this is a purely monarchy-based problem. I mean, any form no. of government, you end up with people unfit there are different, for government. There are different pathologies of this, but I think the problem here, right, is um, it exposes... There's unique, because there are different claims of, of legitimacy, and because the king is actually supposed to be an effective political ruler, with varying degrees of buy-in kind of from the people, it's a lot more of a, it's a, lot more of a problem, in a sense, right? Because you're sort of claiming that this person is supposed to be effective and legitimate but if they can't actually wield power effectively then it sort of gives the lie to the to the system in a in a sort of unique way right i mean a democracy might have its own problems i'm not saying this terribly well but i I suppose the challenge is like you have somebody who's manifestly unfit but you can't get rid of them without bloodshed and like undermining of the very system of government and the kingdom itself, right? You can't you can't displace. Right, there's no. Like I see what you mean. There's no. T- there's no time limit, right? There's, there's no. no there's no four year term a- after which you right. say. Right. Yes, and, and, I think and in the it, modern era, it doesn't matter, right? Because largely kings are heads of state, but not heads of government. They have governments with which they don't really interfere. Mm-hmm. But back then. I mean, the king is the, yes, he might have a lord protector who he defers to, but at the end of the day, the buck does stop with him, and he is expected to, like, weigh in on critical junctures yeah. of policy. So I, I think you're right that this is a, you know, if, if you were to assess the weaknesses versus strengths of a form of government, Henry VI is embodying what a lot of the weaknesses of monarchy yes. are. Yes, and the other would be the tyrannical and, and, side, I think, yes. of, of somebody like um, Richard III when he ascends to power. But but let's, I think we should table this conversation yes. because we're going to have a very interesting counterpoint when we get to the Henry V plays yes. for the other side of this, yes, that's which true. will be interesting that's to true. look at. Before we move on from Henry, I want to read, I, I have been, so to be clear, as if you've been listening to this podcast, you know, I think both Will and I have been pretty clearly unsympathetic to Henry VI as a... I'm more sympathetic to his his claim to be king or his, you know, the fact that probably he shouldn't be deposed. But he's pretty clearly an incompetent weakling who really has no business being in power. That's right. That said, in this play, we do get, I think, a little bit of the other side of him. And I wanted to read this one long monologue of his that I think is, you know, for all his faults it feels pretty clear that King Henry does, he's a genuinely kind soul. And that is where he's a vast difference from Richard. Mm. Right. So let let me, this is, this is during, uh, this is in the fields near, near York, either immediately after or during the battle, which will initially end the Lancastrian cause. They'll be back later on. Act two, scene five, Alarum, enter King Henry. Would I were dead, if God's good will were so. For what is in this world but grief and woe? Oh, God, methinks it were a happy life to be no better than a homely swain, to sit upon a hill as I do now, to carve out dials quaintly, point by point, thereby to see the minutes, how they run, How many make an hour full complete? How many hours shall bring about the day? How many days shall finish up the year? How many years a mortal man may live? When this is known, then, to divide the times, so many hours must I tend my flock, 
So many hours must I take my rest. So many hours must I contemplate. So many hours must I sport myself. So many days my ewes have been with young. So many weeks ere the poor fools will e'en. So many years ere I will shear their fleece. So minutes, hours, days, months, and years. Passed over to the end they were created, would bring white hairs unto a quiet grave. Ah, what a life were this! How sweet, how lovely! Gives not the hawthorn bush a sweeter shade to shepherds looking on their silly sheep, than doth a rich embroidered canopy to kings that fear their subjects' treachery? Oh, yes, it doth, a thousandfold it doth. And to conclude, the shepherd's homely curds, his cold, thin drink out of his leather bottle, his wonted sleep under a fresh tree's shade, all which, secure and sweetly he enjoys, is far beyond a prince's delicates, his viands sparkling in a golden cup, his body couched in a curious bed, when care, mistrust, and treason wait on him. So I think by far this is the most eloquent thing King Henry says in any of the three plays. Quite, this and is, sincere. And sincere. And sincere. And to be clear, this is the passage Will was referring to yes. earlier that I was struggling to find. And there, there's something philosophical about this. And like, King Henry, for all his faults, and, and probably this is a source of his faults, right? In that he sort of has a more philosophical, larger picture understanding of the fact that this is all kind of vanity. Yes. Right? And also clarifying that he's definitely more fit for a monk's cell than for the throne. Will, should we move on? Yeah, let's move on. All right. The last thing I wanted to talk about was a little bit getting away from the hardcore politics and plotting mm. of the play and more to talk a little about the literary side of things. So should I start yeah. in here? So th this play is interesting because I think on the one hand, the plotting is actually fairly weak, but I'm very interested in the arc of the three plays as a whole. And obviously Richard III will complete this tetralogy. But, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with the way that Shakespeare accomplishes something seemingly instinctually that I think a lot of contemporary storytellers and particularly from my context from being in Hollywood screenwriters struggle with which is how you sort of construct a multi what amounts to a multi-episode story mm. right so I think Henry VI is actually the only character who carries through all four I guess Warwick as well mm -hmm. but you know there's there's not that many characters that end up being in all three plays but what Shakespeare does pretty effectively is you know, so Margaret of Anjou, who's a major player in part two and an even bigger player in part mm -hmm. three, is sort of introduced at the end of part one, brought in by Suffolk because she's going to be Henry's queen. And so then by the time you get to part two, you already know who she is and she's ready to step forward into a larger role. Mm -hmm. I think the, the most obvious example of this is Richard Plantagenet, the son of Richard, Duke of York, the future Richard III, who is introduced kind of late in part two, along with Edward. And Richard is sort of interesting because he's 
so fully formed almost from the first minute he shows up. Mm -hmm. But he and Edward are pretty minor characters in part two that then become very significant characters in part three. But by the time you start part three, you know who they are and you're ready for them to take that role. So I'm interested in the contrast between the sort of ability to craft the sequence of the plays even when the plotting of the plays is maybe not very Mm. strong. Yeah, I think he does it he does it very effectively. So he's working Shakespeare is working from uh, a book by Hollinshed who's a historian, popular historian of the era who had a big book that was the whole story of the War of the Roses and British politics and and sort of uh, royal history. And I you know, it's a tremendous editing feat, first off, for Shakespeare to distill this as complicated and sometimes frustrating as, like, the Baroque plotting of the plays are. It's impressive in that he he's distilling that from pre-existing material. And I think that probably helps a little bit with the sequeling, because each of these characters has, like, an origin story, but he doesn't feel the need to bake the origin story front and center into everything he's doing. And I, I wonder how much of working from source material that gives him a lot of the the sort of basics and sort of shows the ascent of various people throughout English history sort of helps him do that in a way. Because not all of these people start out, of course, as prominent figures in English and you know English politics and sort of British history. So that that was something that sort of struck me is it's it's kind of a it's interesting to think about how he might be using source material to help structure that a little bit. And it's actually interesting because we're we're going to talk about this a little bit in more detail in a minute, but it makes me think of the sort of the failure of the later season of Game of Thrones, right? Where the right as long as they had the source material of the original George R. R. Martin books, it felt like they were really able to synthesize it well and turn it into good television. Yes. And then as soon as they lost that anchoring thing, like obviously, yes, they they had plot points that they yeah. knew were going to happen, but they didn't really know how to get from point A to point B. And characters started behaving in odd ways to facilitate sort of speeding through the series, but that's a separate a separate issue. I think there's I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? I think to some degree, it's a real triumph to be able to work from a sort of block of material mm-hmm. and fashion it into compelling drama on the stage, you know, or in a more distilled form, you know, in the in the plays that you actually sit down and read. But yeah, it's a really uh, unique achievement that I think people don't necessarily. It, it's it's hard to it's hard to intuitively do, I guess. And of course, Shakespeare had help with all of these things, right? He's sort of working with other writers at times and with a company, and he's familiar from working in playhouses of how this stuff is done. But it is really effective how he introduces characters and lets them grow, and also isn't fussy about killing off ones where it's like, look, Talbot serves his role both historically and he also when he needs to go off stage and be done no matter how dynamic he was he can be removed in the first part of the play because the action and the story goes forward and there's a sort of evolution so in some ways maybe working from the history helps because at least it tells you who's important at different stages this is uh, so it's interesting because i feel like it doesn't really work in this play specifically Mm -hmm. right i mean I, I think this play overall is probably a little bit better than part one, not as good as part two. I don't know. I, I might even say it's not as good as part one. I think it's, I think it's the worst of the three. That's my that's my view. I think but, part two is the best. Part 
one is the second best and part three yeah. is the worst. That's still better than Two Gentlemen of Verona and The Taming of the Shrew, I will say. Yes, I by considerable margin. <laughs> Leaving that out of it, I think the reason for that, like the reason it's not as good as parts one or two is because parts one and two both have a clear, you know, a pretty clear unified narrative or thematic arc, right? Act one goes from the death of Henry V to the loss of the French possessions and sort of it has a complete action in setting up these nobles squabbling and the power vacuum and establishing Henry's weakness, right? There's a complete narrative action to it. Part two, I think even more so, is explicitly the fall of Gloucester, sorry, the fall of Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, and then the rise of York, and we end at the outset of hostilities. Part three just feels like it's a one battle after another, one switching sides after another, and then that narrative arc is sort of not yeah, there. Yeah, so I think the challenge with this play is in some ways it's intended to be the denouement of this trilogy, right? But a lot of the action and a lot of the reversals are often done in the flimsiest of pretexts and done repeatedly. So it's sort of people are declaiming all sorts of things, but it's not terribly compelling. And then the reversals of momentum on the battlefield. This is the one play that I felt like really suffers in the reading of the three because you don't actually have a good sense of why one side is winning and one side is not. Like, yes, there are the intrigues and so forth, but there's a lot of stuff that happens on the battlefield that you just see, like, excursions are happening is literally the stage direction. Like, there's fighting on the stage, and then, like, dialogue just jumps in and basically announces, like, what happened. Or sort of even just, like, states, oh, well, you know, we like things did not go well for us in the battlefield, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really... It's a pretty thin read as like literature to sort of hold your audience's attention. Whereas, right, you watch something that really takes care to stage and give clear direction in like battle scenes. Like actually, I think this is something the early scene of game, the early scenes in Game of Thrones do quite effectively is they use the battle scenes and the sort of dynamism and the events as not a separate thing from the story. It's something that's very clearly foreshadowed, sort of what happens technically on the battlefield, and you sort of see that in action. You see characters behaving as they would. It's not just a bunch of guys running around on stage swinging their swords at each other, right? There's reasons why kind of things happen, and that feels kind of removed from this. So that's maybe another reason why I thought the plotting felt particularly weak, is one, it's just a sequence of betrayals, often without much rationale, and two when things actually change, it's like, oh, well, this side's winning, that side's winning now, but, like, why are they winning? Why are they losing? That's never really entirely, I think, clear when you're when you're going through the play. Yeah, I think I, I, I basically agree with you. Yeah. Do we have do we have more on this point? Because I think no. we could also... I was, I was going to say, so, you know, by way of transition, we've brought up Game of Thrones a lot in these three plays, And I think it's important to talk about why and also to make some interesting analogies and comparisons and really just talk about Game of Thrones for about five minutes. All right. Well, I think the reason we've brought it up is because it seems pretty clear that Game of Thrones is, in its basic plotting, almost explicitly, if not explicitly based on this play cycle exactly, at least based on the same events. And I'm pretty sure, based on the reading of these plays, that... George R. R. Martin has drawn a lot of in, of his inspiration for characters from these plays. I, I think you know, that's I think, right. I think you see, 
as and this is what we talked about in part two, the portrayal of Humphrey Duke of Gloucester in part two feels like it is a direct inspiration for Ned the portrayal of Ned Stark in the first season of Game of Thrones. You see... This sort of Yorkist scheming in court parallels the Lannisters, where they're sort of putatively loyal to the crown, yeah. but it's I mean, very even, clear. Even in the background, right, there's... Or, in, sorry, in the, in the backstory, I should say, right? Like, you know, Game of Thrones takes place in a world wherein King Robert has led a successful rebellion against a king who everyone understood to be incompetent. And insane. And and insane, but nonetheless, there are Targaryen legitimists out there who are saying, but no, he was the proper king and a Targaryen should be on the throne. And s- similar to how Henry IV justified his realm, mm-hmm. there's this talk about how, you know, they justify it through going back through the family trees and marriages and daughters and whatnot, but ultimately it's only because of power. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's a pretty... There's not one, but two pretty clear Margaret of Anjou parallels in Game of Thrones, in Daenerys and Cersei. Yeah, but there's also, there's a marriage in part one where Henry is supposed to marry the daughter of the Duke of Armagnac. The Earl of Armagnac. The Earl of Armagnac. And that would have been the strategic marriage alliance that he needed to prevent a lot of these events from sort of shaking out as they did. But he goes with the woman that he is promised by Suffolk, who turns out to be very beautiful, and he violates that pledge. And then in this play, right... King, I mean, in this play, it's almost an even more explicit. It's even more explicitly so. So King Edward is presented with this sort of minor noblewoman, Lady Grey, and decides upon seeing her that he's going to pursue her because he's sexually interested in her, basically. Whereas, you know, the smart thing, the prudent thing to do would be to marry... Lady the, Lady Bonne. Lady, Lady Bonne. Bonne uh, How Bonne, you pronounce whatever, it? Whatever. Of the French... Royal court. Of the French royal court. And, you know, that's a parallel to Rob Stark's behavior, right? It's like never defeated on the battlefield, but man, made some bad, made some bad marriage decisions, which of course culminate later, much to the ruin of his family. So, so there's a lot of like little instances like that, which I think are, are quite, quite compelling. And you can see why it's like such a rich play, both in structure and in particular episodes to draw upon. Agreed. Ranking the play, I think we've already given our thoughts on that. MVP of this play, Will? MVP of this play, that is a that is a tough question. There's not a whole lot of winners. I I think I would have to say, and this is maybe my preference for villains, I continue to enjoy Richard Plantagenet, now Richard, Duke, Duke of, of Gloucester, Gloucester, soon to be King Richard the Third of his name. You know, I am gonna agree with you on this. Still the champion, Richard the Third. Oh, excuse me. Still the champion, Richard Plantagenet, now Richard, Duke of Gloucester. If you want your villainy and power politics just like straight uncut, the guy refers to himself as a Machiavell, as in Machiavelli, in the play text. And he's constantly breaking the breaking the, breaking the fourth, fourth wall. wall, which it becomes obviously a trope of 
of his in in Richard the Third, but it also shows like he also shows a degree of interiority and like he's a sick. sick he's the guy. only one, isn't he? He's the only one that who, sort who, of like reflects. really seems to have an actual personality. Yes, he reflects to himself. He clearly has resentments, and they're not resentments that he is necessarily openly sharing with other characters. He's keeping yeah. things to himself. I think Will, we should end it there rather than getting into a conversation about Richard because. I can guarantee you and our listeners, we're going to have a lot more to say about this character. Indeed. Anything else you want to bring up? No, I think that was great. And that's our show. We still have one more play to get through in this cycle. But before we get there, we'll be briefly cleansing our palates with the sweet, sweet taste of human flesh. Please tune in next time to hear me and Will discuss Shakespeare's first attempt at tragedy in Titus Andronicus. Thanks, as always, for listening to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter, or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.